That is one chatty group over there. So if you want to meet some really nice and friendly people, I suggest you go over there. Did I just insult everybody else? Is that what I did? Pretty much. No, the rest of you were friendly too, but that group. That group. Maybe we should give a prize for those who travel the longest distance on a Sunday morning to shake someone's hand in the congregation. That'd be good. Well, Carol and I live in, an, in a house that um, is almost 60 years old. And I, uh, by the standards of the place where I grew up, that's nothing. But here in the Southern California area, 60 years is considered an older home now. And uh, one of the joys of living in an older home is the uh, constant need of repairs. And uh, it just seems like there's always something in that home that needs to be fixed. And uh, presently topping my list are, is the uh, wooden fence in the backyard. It's, uh, it, I've owned the home now 20, almost 22 years, and the fence was there before I got there. And so I think we've gotten maximum mileage out of it, but, you know, it's one of those things. It needs repairs. When I grew up uh, in New England, it was considered uh, sort of rude and unneighborly to put a six-foot stockade fence around your property. It was just not done unless you hated your neighbors. You just didn't do that sort of thing. But here in Southern California, that's the norm, right? We completely fence ourselves off. And um, that's probably partially because we live in such a dense, packed area. Everybody's living on top of each other, and so to try to get some space, uh, we fence off our properties. Maybe that uh, just demonstrates the truth of that old proverb that says, uh, good fences make good neighbors. Fences essentially have um, two purposes. First is to obscure people's view of what lies on the other side of the fence. Secondly, to uh, limit or restrict their access to what lies on the other side of the fence. So we we put up fences because we don't want people to look, and we put up fences because we don't want people to touch. Now, we, uh, we have a swimming pool, and so I'm glad we have a fence because I don't want people looking or touching uh, in that context, to be sure. The time of the Maccabees, so that's the second century B.C., before the New Testament opens. In the time of the Maccabees, a, a small group, a very... Um, pious, very uh, religious, very God-fearing men arose in Israel. And they became known as the Pharisees. And they were deeply concerned for the spiritual health of the nation as they returned from the Babylonian captivity. They did not want to see the nation again descend into the kind of apostasy and idolatry that had led to God exiling them from their homeland. So they started out with a very noble goal and purpose. 
And what they did was, over time, they, they built up a body of oral interpretation and application of the Mosaic Law. They studied the law, they were very diligent in their study of the law, and they, and they worked on, you know, what did it mean and what were its implications and, and so forth. But when the pages of the New Testament open, what we find is that the noble concern of those Pharisees had metastasized into two basically competing schools of teaching, both of which were a, a labyrinth of a, of, of a tedious extra-biblical laws and pronouncements. That which had started out so good had, had become a real barrier, a, a fence around the Word of God. And they even referred to it that way, as fencing off the Word of God. But it became a fence in, in the worst possible sense of the term. It obscured the view of God. It limited the access to God. And they became the gatekeepers. No one could come to God except through them. And beloved, that's what happens when we build fences around the Word of God. Human rules, human traditions, they become just that. They become a barrier. They become an obstacle. They become a way eventually to obscure God or even limit one's access to God. We're talking about legalism and the sin of legalism. What is a legalist? I gave you a definition last week and... I'll just repeat it for you again this week because it's important to keep it in mind. A legalist is one who seeks to obligate themselves and others by the addition of non-biblical requirements for the purpose of pleasing man and gaining favor with God. Building fences around God and around His Word. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 12 if you're not there already. We're coming back to something we started last week entitled Dealing with Legalists. Dealing with Legalists. In Matthew chapter 12, at least the beginning part of the chapter here, verses 1 to 14, which is our focus, Matthew gives to us, in order to illustrate the the comparison between Jesus and the Pharisees, between the the yoke of the Pharisees, their their traditions, their laws, their, their fences, and that of Jesus who simply says, come everyone who is weary, everyone who is tired, everyone who is worn out under this system, come to me. And you'll find relief for your soul. And in particular, Matthew arranges for us here the the account of the Sabbath controversies. And probably nothing highlights the, the difference between Jesus and his message and the Pharisees and their message than this understanding and misunderstanding of the Sabbath. What does it mean to rest? 
What does the Sabbath really mean? How does one truly keep it? And so as we look together here at these verses, we've arranged it into three stages. Three three stages of the controversy, as it were. Three stages to Jesus' Sabbath controversy. And the reason we're looking at it this way is so that we might refuse legalistic enslavement ourselves and learn the meaning, the true meaning of Sabbath rest. The human heart is prone towards legalism. The human heart is prone towards erecting fences around God. The human heart is prone towards substituting their own traditions, their own rules, their own requirements, their own understandings for what the Word of God has to say. So last week we looked at the, uh, the first stage. It was in verses 1 and 2, and, and I'm calling it a ridiculous discussion, and I, I chose that because that's exactly what these things often descend into when, when dealing with someone who has a legalistic understanding. Is it, it gets down into a ridiculous discussion of minutiae. And that's exactly what happens here. Matthew says in verse 1, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. And we noted last time that that uh, Sabbath observance is a very, very serious thing. God takes it very, very seriously, and so did the Jewish people. It is the fourth commandment, the keeping of the Sabbath, and and it's clear that there's no work to be done on that day. But the big question, of course, that follows that kind of a pronouncement is, well, what is work? What is work? What is Prohibited, specifically what is prohibited, what constitutes work. And the Pharisees were all too happy to answer that question, and over the centuries they did just that. And, and they, they worked this out in an excruciating level of detail, a, a ultimately ridiculous detail, where it got down to the point where you couldn't drag a chair across the floor because the legs of the chair might might make a furrow in the ground and that would be considered plowing and that's work that is forbidden on the Sabbath day. And that's exactly what happens when you, when you try to work it all out. Matthew says here that Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're hungry. They're walking through a grain field. It is the Sabbath. They're doing what the law clearly permits. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 26. It says specifically that, that the, that the day traveler, that the poor of the land, when they're, when they're walking, when they're on a journey, and they pass through a grain field, they can take with their hand some of the grain, and, and they can eat it. It's God's heart. It's a heart of compassion. They can't take their sickle with them. You know, they can't drag a wheelbarrow behind them and, you know, and harvest the grain. But, but it's there for them, for any who need it. And you just pick a few and, you know, you kind of rub them in your hand. You blow off the chaff and you, you eat them. And that's what they were doing. Perfectly innocent, perfectly lawful. And yet it violates the, the understanding of the Sabbath day that the, the Pharisees held so dearly and, and were imposing upon the people. 
As far as the Pharisees are concerned, the, the, the disciples here are, are guilty of some serious Sabbath violations. I mean, picking the grain is, is uh, they said, is reaping. You know, rubbing it together in your hands, that's threshing. Harvesting, you know, taking it and eating it. It's the, you can't do these things. I mean, and, and the law does specifically prohibit harvesting the grain. On the Sabbath day, Exodus 34, verse 21, you cannot harvest on the Sabbath. The question just becomes is, is that really what they're doing? But in the understanding of the day, yes. Yes. It was a ridiculous kind of discussion. You know, we're talking about a few handfuls of grain. Well, Jesus is not going to let this lie. You know, you, you read the, the gospel accounts, and one thing I don't think you can help but come away with is, is recognize that, that Jesus is not intimidated by anybody. And, and when, when, you know, when something's not right, he calls it out. Calls it out. He, he, he's not willing to look the other way. He's not, he's not willing to allow the people to be put upon by the leadership, the religious leadership of the day. So this, there is a real confrontation here about authority. Whose authority? And that really is, is sort of underlying this account. So Jesus responds here, and that's the second stage of the, of the controversy here. He responds with what I'm calling a rigorous defense. Verses 3 to 8. A rigorous defense against the charge of, that, that his disciples, and by, by extension he who permits it to happen, are Sabbath breakers. And he does this by, by demonstrating the absurdity of the pharisaical charge. And he does it by, by employing a series of arguments. There are four of them here in the text. Four arguments by which he, he makes his rigorous defense, by which he dismantles the ridiculous argument of the Pharisees, their, their, their system that is both ridiculous and oppressive. And by the time he gets to the end here, and by verse 8, he, he has demolished them and their system. All that harsh, legalistic interpretation, he, he has completely demolished it. And as one might imagine, in the process, he has greatly angered them. They are, they are not happy with him. And, and he ends it in verse 8, and we'll get there, but, but he ends it with a, with a veiled but, but very unambiguous claim to deity. So let's see how he does it. Let's take a look at his first argument. First argument in verses 3 and 4 is the argument of necessity. The argument of necessity. Now, his, his first argument is basically this, that, that the non-work requirement of the Sabbath is not an absolute non-work requirement. It is not absolute in certain limited circumstances, it can be violated. It can be violated. And those very narrow and limited circumstances are the circumstances of human necessity. Human necessity. And Jesus does this by, by citing an Old Testament example of David violating the Mosaic law by eating the consecrated bread. And the way Jesus uh, does this, I love it, he's, he's kind of really sarcastic here. 
And he, he basically sarcastically asked the Pharisees if, if perhaps in their Bible reading they missed this one. Maybe they skipped over. You know, they're reading the Bible through in a year and they, and they missed that day. They skipped over that account. You, you know, you've got to feel it from their point of view, right? This is, oh, this is sticking it in and twisting it around a little. He said to them, verse 3, Have you not read... Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which is, was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Now, according to the commandment of God in the Mosaic Law, the, the priests were to place on what's called the table of showbread, inside first the tabernacle and then the temple, uh, 12 loaves of freshly baked bread. Very large loaves, by the way. Three and a half pounds of flour per loaf. Good-sized loaves of bread. And they were to be placed in, in two rows of six on the table. They were to be placed there on the Sabbath day. And they were to remain in the presence of God on this table for the entire week, and then at the end they were to be removed and fresh loaves were to replace them. And the the loaves that were were, uh, removed were then the exclusive property of the priests, and they were to eat them, they and their families. And only they and their families were allowed to eat them according to the law of God. Now, the loaves that were were placed there represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They represented them, and and they basically represented this idea. And I think uh, the commentator, uh, William Hendrickson, catches it well. He says, "It, it represents the 12 tribes in constant fellowship with God, receiving their bread from Him, eating with Him, being consecrated to Him, and gracefully acknowledging their indebtedness to Him by means of this Offering. So it symbolized the nation in communion with their God. As I said, each week the, the, um, the loaves are removed and the fresh bread is put in its place. And the priesthood eats the bread and only the priesthood. Except in 1 Samuel 21 where David eats it. David violates the law and eats he and those who are with him the consecrated bread. Now, as Jesus recalls this account here in in, uh, verses 3 and 4, David passes over a certain part of that narrative. If the narrative is familiar to you, you you realize the fact that David deceives the high priest there, Ahimelech, and tells him that he's on a mission for the king and he and his men and so forth, and they didn't have time to get provisions. And and, uh, so is there anything to eat? And the priest says, well, there's nothing here but the bread. And David says, I'll eat that. And the priest says, okay. And Jesus passes over all of that because it's not relevant. It's not relevant to the point that he's trying to make. The reason, here it is, the reason that Jesus cites this account is because the high priest, Ahimelech, recognizes David's need and the need of the men who are with him. They are hungry. And the priest violates the law of God in order to satisfy that need. And 
The Word of God never criticizes either David or the priest for this act. In fact, as you read it, it's pretty clearly portrayed that he did the right thing. He gave him the bread. Now, the point of comparison here is the the hunger. You see it in verse 3. Have you not read what David uh, did when he became hungry? And verse 1, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became, you see the word, hungry. Hungry. Now this is a, this is a powerful argument. This is a par- powerful argument here because, because basically what Jesus is saying, listen, if the hunger of David's men sets aside the divine law without blame, then how much more should the disciples' hunger set aside a rabbinical law governing the Sabbath? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. And it's a powerful argument. Basically what was happening... Beloved, is, is that the Pharisees were, were their interpretation of the Sabbath law was, was preventing men from satisfying the legitimate need of their hunger. And what that did is it, is it turned the Sabbath from being a blessing into a curse. A blessing becomes a curse. That's a heavy yoke. That is a heavy yoke indeed to bear. And it's, and it's really fascinating, I think. Uh, Matthew leaves out this uh, out of the account, but, but Mark picks it up in Mark chapter 2. Right after, in Mark's uh, account of this, right after Jesus brings up the story of David to the Pharisees, he clarifies the original intent of God's Sabbath law, and that is that it was for the benefit of humanity. So Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Mark records, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't, didn't uh, create this, this day and then say, okay, now all of you uh, need to be in submission to and serve this day. No, he creates the day in order to take care of the needs of his people. But under the Pharisees, it had been flipped It had been flipped. That which had been given for the blessing of God's people now became a heavy yoke to bear. It became a curse. You couldn't even satisfy your hunger when the law even legitimately says you can, but but not under their system. The Sabbath came into existence in Genesis chapter 2 for the benefit of mankind. For the benefit of mankind. If God had not given the Sabbath, we would just work our fool heads off. And he's given it to us to rest. But it can be temporarily set aside by human need. By human need. And here's the punchline. If God allows his own law on occasion to be broken because of human need, then certainly our religious traditions, our rituals, our laws must be flexible in the face of human need as well. We cannot have a higher standard than God himself has. That's not holiness, by the way. Holiness is not God's standard plus. That's legalism. That's not holiness. So the argument of necessity. Secondly, Jesus follows this by flowing right into what I'm calling the argument of priority. The argument of priority, verses 5 
and 6. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Again, he gives them a little cut, right? A little karate chop. Have you not read in the law? I mean, these are the people who pride themselves on knowing what the law says. We know what the scripture says. And Jesus said, you know, have you not read? And he, and he points them here to an obvious exception. An obvious exception to Sabbath law, the fourth commandment, and it's, and it's built right in to the Mosaic law. This is not a, we don't have to reason from the account of David here. This is an expressed exception to the fourth commandment. And it has to do with the priesthood in maintaining the sacrificial system itself. Now, priests worked hard. It was hard work being a priest in the Mosaic system. Hard physical labor. They had to to maintain and tend the fire and the altar. It's a wood fire. It wasn't wasn't fired by natural gas. This thing's by firewood. It's got to be cut. It's got to be split. It's got to be hauled. All the water that has to be hauled for all the various washings. There is a lot of hard work involved. Beyond that, the sacrificial animal itself, it has to be butchered, it has, you know, killed and butchered and skinned. You have to hoist the carcass up onto the altar to burn. There is a lot of work involved. It's it's a hard, hard occupation. And the interesting thing is, according to the Mosaic Law, on the Sabbath day, the priests worked twice as hard. Twice as hard because the law called for double sacrifices on the Sabbath. Numbers chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath in addition to the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. So do everything you do, you know, the rest of the week plus extra. The Sabbath for the priesthood was their busiest day. It was the day they worked the hardest. And Jesus points this out. He points it out and he says, haven't you read? Even in the law itself, the Sabbath has a built-in exception clause. Now, it's it's really, I think, uh, instructive. The the word that Jesus uses here to, to talk about this divinely sanctioned exception. Verse 5, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? The, the word, the, the Greek word here is, is actually uh, could well be translated desecrate or profane. Have you not read in the law that the priests desecrate the Sabbath and are innocent? They profane the Sabbath and are innocent. Jesus chooses this word that is a very provocative word, and he does it because he wants to heighten the contrast here of what's going on. He wants to intensify the fact that the non-work requirement of the Sabbath law is not absolute. It is not absolute. 
Further, he goes on to, to establish the example of um, what to do when two laws collide. The idea of, of priority. Because basically what we have is two laws on collision course here, right? We have the Sabbath law of rest, and we have the regulation of double sacrifice and all the work associated with it. So which do you keep? Which do you keep? And what we see is, by God's own word, from his own mouth, is that there is a higher law here. The higher law, in this case of temple sacrifice, actually takes precedent over the absolute interpretation of the fourth commandment. In this limited and unique circumstance, the higher law here is to maintain the sacrificial system. Why? Because it's the system by which the people maintain their relationship with God. And that took priority even over the fourth commandment. Now Jesus drives this argument home in verse 6. And he declares there in a really startling fashion that, that if this is good for the temple, right, the, the, the temple takes over the fourth commandment, I am greater than the temple, and so obviously yeah, me and my disciples take precedent over your silly, ridiculous, pharisaical regulations. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. What is the greater thing than the temple? It is Jesus as the messianic king. Jesus, the messianic king, is greater than the temple, which takes precedent over the Sabbath. So the argument of priority. We have the argument of necessity. We have the argument of priority. It takes us to the third. The argument of intent. The argument of intent. Verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Amazing. First he says, maybe you missed this in your Bible reading. Then he says, uh, you know, haven't you read this in the law? And now he says, you've read this, but you don't know what it means. You set yourselves up as the, as the keepers of the law. You're the fence builders. You're the ones who, who are saying that you don't get to God, but come by and through our fence. We're the gate of the fence. And he's saying, you, you don't know anything about the Bible. You know a lot of you know a lot of facts, but, but you have no idea what they mean. You're not able to relate them. Now you can bet they were probably happy to hear that. Right? They were happy to hear that. He quotes for them here Hosea chapter six and verse six, and just a piece of it. And the point of the, of the citation here is, is to point out their hardness of heart. They have a hard heart. And because they have a hard heart, they don't get it. They don't get it. In their rigid legalism, they have failed to understand the, the true intent of the Sabbath law. What is it? What is the, what is the heart of it? And, and 
By the way, when it says I desire compassion and not sacrifice, the word sacrifice is, is sort of a stand-in word for the entire Mosaic law. So you, you could legitimately understand this as, this, you know, you don't know what this means. God says, I desire compassion rather than the entire Mosaic law. That's what I'm after. That's the heart of the law. That's the intention of the law. That draws out what I really mean by the law. You read your Old Testament, and there's all kinds of rules and all kinds of regulations, right? You know, you're reading through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and your, your eyes are crossing, and you're, you know, but the, the intent behind it all is the compassion of God. It's about the compassion of God. It's not about how to mix or not mix, you know, threads in your garment and seeds in your field and putting parapets around your roof and, and on and on. It's about the compassion of God. The law of God was never designed to restrict acts of compassion and mercy. You can take that to the bank. The law of God was never designed to restrict acts of compassion and mercy. The whole system is a reflection of the grace and compassion of God. It is the Mosaic law, by the way, that... that that allows people to approach a holy God at that time, right? For his forgiven people to come into fellowship with the creator of the universe. He gives them the law. Without it, they'd be incinerated. It's a reflection of his compassion. We can legitimately say this. The true intent of the Sabbath law of God was rest, not enslavement. Compassion, not condemnation. Okay? Rest, not enslavement. Compassion, not condemnation. The argument of intent. So we have the argument of necessity. We have the argument of priority. We have the argument of intent. Now we have the argument of authority. It's fourth and final argument. The argument of Authority. Verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man. That title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And it is a reference to the divine messianic king who comes before the throne of the Father to receive the title deed for his kingdom of the earth. It's in prophetic form. The Son of Man. The Son of Man also happens to be Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. Over 80 times in the New Testament, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He loves that title. And he loves that title because, I mean, it's true, he loves it for that reason, but he loves it beyond that reason because it's an ability for him to declare who he is yet still do it in a veiled way that eludes the authorities who are seeking to, to arrest him on a charge of treason and blasphemy. This is an illustration of the wisest serpent, innocent as dove principle. So Jesus is the Son of Man, and it's a, a reference, as I say, to the divine king. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does it mean? 
What it means is, as Lord, you, you know, Lord is like boss, master, one in charge, meaning that he therefore can declare the true purpose and intent of the Sabbath, and thus by extension any of these ridiculous regulations that the rabbis have foisted onto the nation, he can just push them all to the side. He is not governed by the foolishness of men. He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, He is Lord of the Sabbath. He can restore the Sabbath to its rightful purpose, its rightful role, its rightful observance. So how do you think all that went down? Yep, just about like you'd imagine. They're not happy. They are not happy. The, the, The Pharisees, they are not happy. They have been silenced. They have been humiliated. Their foolishness has been pointed out to them. Their their biblical illiteracy has been paraded. And their anger is smoldering. Pressure is building. I mean, this is an itinerant rabbi from Galilee. This guy didn't go to any theological seminary. And he has crushed them at their own game. The anger is growing. And they're going to do something about it. They are going to do something about it. And it's not going to be long before they do. He's bested them in their their entire discussion of the meaning of the Sabbath. So what's going to happen? Well, their anger is going to coalesce. They're going to lay a trap for him. And we're going to look at that next week. They're, they're, going to, they're going to lay a trap for him. They're going to catch him, or at least they think they are. They want to discredit him with the people. He is an absolute threat to their power base. And they're going to destroy him. Now, as I was thinking about this section of scripture and I spent more time this week thinking about how to apply this than I spent thinking about what does it all mean and I spent a considerable amount of time thinking about what does it all mean because it would be very very easy to leave this in its historical context and walk away and go okay I get it man those Pharisees those rascals right I would never do that But that wouldn't be profitable to us. We need to be challenged. We need to be challenged. Those who were here last week, I I asked you to go home. Remember, you had a homework assignment. I asked you to go home. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you know, how many did your homework. But but I asked you to go home to think about in what way are you tempted to add to the Word of God in, in your definition of what it means to be a good Christian? What kind of things... Do you find yourself tempted to layer on? We need to battle this temptation. I mean, we just can't ignore it. We need to battle it. So, so I come up with some principles, some general governing principles, guidelines. These are not laws. These are not fences. These are not traditions. These are not inspired these are, I don't know, how many caveats do I have to give? These are, these are some suggested guidelines that I think 
at this point in time, are true and biblical in uh, drawn from this passage. And the idea is to, is to help me, to help you, to help us, to, to avoid the enslavement of legalism. And to understand the true meaning of Sabbath rest. So I have five of them. So here we go. First, general principle. Number one, rules have exceptions. How's that? General principle, rules have exceptions. Right? Or as you probably heard, there's an exception to every rule, even that rule. (laughs) Yeah, a few sharp ones catch on, right? Yeah. Rules have exceptions. Okay, so what do I do with this? Well, you and I, we have certain convictions. We have certain traditions. We have, we have certain family values that are important to us. They're important to us. And, and they're important to us in terms of how we express our Christian commitment. A certain way we do things. A certain way we think about things. A certain way we conduct ourselves publicly, privately, in our home, in church, etc. What we need to realize is, is that even the best of these have exceptions. They have exceptions. Your conviction, your commitment, your tradition, your value, there are exceptions to it. It is not a universal rule and law. Well, what is a valid reason for an exception to this thing? And I'm, and I'm not minimizing these. You know, I'm saying these are very, very important things. Well, what, what, what would be a valid cause to have an exception for some long-standing tradition in your family? I think in light of the text here, the answer would have to be human need. Human need. And that takes me to my second governing principle, and that is human need necessitates exceptions. First principle, rules have exceptions. Second principle, human need necessitates exceptions. And it kind of goes this way. Listen, if God allows exceptions to his law for the sake of human need, then we must be willing to extend the reality that there are exceptions to our laws based on human need. Our convictions based on human need. Our convictions, our traditions, our values cannot overrule. They are not inviolable. And human need is the basis of that exception. Now, would you like me to spell out human need? I think I can do it in 39 different categories, with each category having multiple subsets. Yeah, you get the point, right? Any statement beyond that, human need begins to smell like the same thing the Pharisees were guilty of. So it's a wisdom principle based on understanding the heart of the law, the compassion of God, praying, seeking counsel, and then making your decision.
So rules have exceptions. Human need necessitates exceptions. Third, governing, excuse me, governing principle. Following Jesus and keeping the rules is not the same thing. Following Jesus and keeping the rules is not the same thing. The Pharisees were excellent rule keepers. You will never be as good as them. They were the best rule keepers that ever lived. And yet, no one was further from the kingdom of God than they. Nobody. It is tempting to substitute a a checklist of external behaviors, right, for the reality of a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Just tell me what I've got to do. Very tempting. So ask yourself this question. Why do you do what you do in terms of your religious activities? Why do you do it? Second question. Are you okay with people who do it differently? Why do you do what you do, and are you okay with those who do it differently? Or do you secretly look down on them? I mean, you know, they're okay, but they're really not up to our standard. Oh, pastor, there's no church like Foothill Bible Church. Yeah, you're right. But not in the way you think. Are you good with people who see the world differently? Express their, their commitment to Christ differently than we do. Are you really okay with that? Fourth, God's heart is grace, not law. God's heart is grace and not law. If God's heart were law, we would all be in hell right now. If God were to exercise the law without exception, we would all be in hell right now. That's what we deserve. God's heart is a heart of grace. All right? Our Heavenly Father constantly pours forth grace on His children and on those that aren't His children for that matter. The heart of God is grace. It's constantly pouring forth. The Old Testament law is a, is a vivid and dramatic demonstration of the grace of God. Some people think, oh, the Old Testament, that's law. The New Testament, that's grace. No, it is grace from beginning to end. It is nothing but grace poured out on us. So listen, if we're his children, right? We're the children of the Father. Then, then we need to have a family resemblance. That seems fair. Which means that, that Our orientation towards people needs to be grace, not law. Grace, not law. Now, how does that manifest itself? Sorry, you got to work that out. If I can say a word here to, to parents raising children, particularly young children, actually all children, teenagers, come to them in grace. Come to them with grace. Remember who you are, a sinner saved by grace. Remember how many chances God gives you, right? How many times you have said to God, oh, 
God, I'm sorry. Give me another chance. How often we, you know, are, we want to receive grace, but we want to deal out law. God's heart is grace. It needs to be our heart too. It needs to be ours. Fifth. Scripture overrides human rules and traditions. Scripture overrides human rules and traditions. Jesus said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He overrules human rules and traditions. We know the mind of Christ through what? Through the Scriptures. Through the Word of Christ. And so therefore the Scriptures ultimately rule. So what this means is that unless we can make a clear and compelling case from the Word of God for a particular position that we hold, it is only our opinion. If you cannot make a clear and compelling, convincing case from the Word of God, then it is only your opinion. And you are entitled to your opinion, but you are not entitled to foist your opinion on everyone else and make them conform. And you're not allowed to to establish your opinion as the fence that controls the access to God. Sure, come to Jesus, but you've got to come in my way, through my door. Very subtle. Very lethal. I only had five, sorry. Maybe you can come up with more. But I think that's enough to chew on. That's enough to chew on. Let us uh, pray. Let us ask for the grace of Christ to be continually poured out on us. Let us think on these things this week. Our Father, this uh, conflict between Christ and the Pharisees is in microcosm the the conflict that rages and has raged since the beginning. And it certainly, to one degree or another, uh, rears its ugly head in our hearts. The desire to, to add on human work, human tradition, human opinion, human rules, and to gain control of the access to you. But the scripture says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so we cannot, we must not, we dare not add anything. Father, I I pray for your Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to see where we might be tempted. Not in in this overt fashion that we read about here from our from our vantage point of 2,000 years removed, it almost seems like a caricature of the, with the Pharisees. These were serious men. These were men, our Father, who were seeking to establish their own righteousness and they had neglected the righteousness that comes by faith. Our Father, may you protect us from the same evil root that lies in our hearts as well. Let us be known as a people of mercy and grace, compassion, Let us be winsome in this community. 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.